But um, yeah, we got a. Well, Jared was um, he's our high school basketball coach. Oh, the mic. Can you can you not hear me? Hello. All right. Um, so yeah, he was our high school basketball coach, and then uh, last year kind of told us what he was doing, and just felt the Lord was uh, calling to help out here. So it was definitely a great opportunity to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and last <clears throat> last year, uh, the Dominican Republic came up as uh, it's an option for us to go on this trip. Uh, we never really served before in another country, so um, it's uh, actually. It's First Baptist Church um, of Wallingford, and they've been going for 20 years. Um, yeah, so I'm talking about fulfilling smiles. They have a bunch of different uh, ministries through this. So. You, that was you. That was my intro. Yeah. You. So fulfilling smiles was you. Can we talk about? All right. Yeah. So fulfilling. All right. I got some talking about fulfilling smiles. Um, it was about four. I think four or five years ago. Um, they they're all eating lunch uh, on a job site working, um, and all the all the Dominican kids were sitting around, and most of them are just starving, um, really hungry. So they all have their ham sandwiches or whatever, and uh, one lady just decided she's like, like I can't eat with all these kids watching me. So um, from that sparked this uh, this food ministry where they go around uh, just. It's a little, they live in little shacks, which I'll, I'll talk about later. But, uh, yeah, they just go around and supply them with food for about a month or so. Um, the pictures. Yeah. I don't know what we got there. But uh, next thing is uh, 50 for 50, which is a new um, housing ministry we're starting. Was that a cell phone? <laughs> you can answer it if you want. <laughs> um, so, yeah, 50 for 50, uh, we're starting this year. Uh, we're going into one of the poorest villages down there and building uh, well, it's going to be a long project but hopefully building 50 new houses on this place um, they live in conditions where it's just uh, yeah these are the shacks right here oh, yeah. made out of basically wood and whatever uh, they can find just pieces of uh, rusty metal um, the roofs are made out of just tree branches like tied together by strings and some of them are held by like paper clips and stuff yeah. anytime it rains like all their food all beds get soaked and Mostly, you have to dry all the food. Um, so yeah, so our goal is to build uh, weatherproof houses, hurricane-proof houses. For me. Um, yeah. The hot, well, the hospital is another big, uh, big ministry down there. They, uh, it was about 20 years ago when they started. Um, this guy Jean-Luc Fenard had a vision to build this like state-of-the-art hospital, and uh, you know where people could get. Modern healthcare, um, and now today, yeah, yeah. they're putting on the third story. Um, and it's it's a great facility. But, yeah, that's been going on for 20 years. Um, and then also other stuff we do um, besides that type of work is uh, more ministry stuff. Um, we go down to the Bates, which are the little villages in the sugarcane fields, um, where mostly uh, more the more poor people are. Um, Sharing the gospel, giving them the truth to life, the key, the answers to life, and everything, uh, the truth about Jesus Christ and um, how important He is to them. Um, it's pretty cool. We have uh, we split it up with like a kids thing and then an adults thing, and we actually had two guys this year uh, who led that. Um, one guy, uh, Pastor Lubin, he was from Haiti, so he, he speaks Creole and Spanish, but he's been a pastor up in Wallingford up here for about 20 years now. 
so he speaks both fluently. He's uh, bilingual, so he was a translator. And then we had another guy come down, uh, Josh Guido, his name was, and he would do the English. And uh, these two together were a great combination, um, both with a lot of energy and uh, definitely got the word across. I mean, throughout the day we'd have some numbers of 70 people getting saved to 90 to I think even 100 one time, but like a lot, a lot, a lot of people were getting saved through the message of the gospel. Um, and then uh, just a story that I had was, um, as you can see here, these sugarcane fields. This isn't the greatest picture, um, but right here, it, this sugarcane, it just goes out forever and ever. It just looks like when you're just driving through these roads, you're on the you're on the school bus, you're sitting above it. So you just see the sugarcane fields, and it looks like they just go on just forever and ever and ever. And um, actually, what people do for work down there is they, the men, if you're like, you start at a young age to, to do this, but they literally chop a thousand pounds of sugarcane each day to get four dollars a day. So they're working their tails off. Um, six hour days are out there, sun up to sun down, literally barefoot, callous stuff, everything, uh, with a machete in a bag, basically. Thousand pounds a day, and um, so I want to share uh, this real quick. Um, it's in uh, Matthew. It's uh, Matthew nine thirty five. It says, "When Jesus went about the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people." It says, "But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd." Then he said to his disciples. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So, me and my friend are on this bus. You can go back. That, that's that's not really a great picture of it, but um, that's just a, that's just a nice picture. Um, you can go back, Josh, to the other one. Yeah. Um, but just this sugar cane field, right? So these guys are just working their tails off all day, and you see how big these fields are. And there's like one guy, and then one guy all the way at the end. They just have this huge section of it. And uh, me and my buddy are sitting on the bus, and we've been we've been studying this verse for a little while now. I, I went to high school with him, so like the Bible study, everything in the morning, prayer group, whatever it was, we've been talking about this verse. So we're in the Dominican Republic months later, and I, and I look over him, and there's like a guy just sitting like right here on the side of the road, just hacking away the shit, just hacking, hacking, hacking with the machete. And I turned to him and I go, "Hey, Matt, it's like, truly the harvest plentiful, the labor of the field." And it was just like the, one of the, the one of the coolest things I've ever seen. A perfect visual of this verse right here of what. Um, Jesus was telling his disciples, right? And like that is just perfect for us because like we were going out, you know, like Jesus said, should pray that he sends laborers out there. This harvest is truly plentiful. But so many there's labor for food, you know. Um, but that was just one really, really cool story we had so many more cool stories um, from there. But um yeah, that's definitely we're going on uh, July second, uh this year, this summer. Yeah. It's uh ten days? Nine, uh, nine day trip. Nine day trip. So yeah, we'll be in short term, but um, we'd stay up here and talk about it all day, but <laughs> gotta pass it on. Uh, before you guys know, let's pray for you guys real quick. All right. Yep. Uh, Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for John and Dan, and just, you know, it's great to see, uh, Lord, what you do with the youth, Lord, and just fill them up with your love. And you've given them a calling, Lord, and they are ready and they are excited. And that is something, God, that we just, we know is of you, Lord. We know that it's what you put in our hearts and in our minds to, to go out and to speak the truth, Lord, to people who just have never heard it before. And, and 
to me, Lord, I am just blessed to be around these guys. Um, they have given us here at Calvary something uh, we desperately need, and, uh, and that is a servant heart, Lord. And I ask God that you would bless them as they go out and use that servant heart that you have given them, God, to witness to thousands of people and bring them to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our, our second special announcement today is that we have a very special, very, very special guest speaker today. Um, I have known this guy for many years. In fact, he was part of one of the original Bible studies, men's Bible study, that Jared and I and several of us started years ago. And um, it carried through for many years, probably about eight years we had a running Bible study of all of us together. Uh, we'd meet um, once a week, sometimes when we get older and we were on, we wouldn't go once a month. But we'd always meet, and uh, it was something that really is what sparked all of this. Um, just the idea of getting together and having fellowship. And now, uh, it's amazing to see Dan is actually married. He has a son named Owen, who is a little over nine months old. Is that right? Ten months old. And um, he was able to come down here today. He's fresh, fresh out of seminary at Gordon, and uh, is excited to use the gifts that God has given him. Um, and uh, we are very lucky to uh, have a taste of that today. And um, Dan, if you want to come up here. This is Dan Warner, everybody. And uh, let's, let's give Dan a round of applause for being here. Um, just for s- stepping up and, and, and coming uh, in place of Jerry not being able to be here. And I, I am excited to listen to Dan speak. I think it's cool. He always had good things to share in Bible study. So um, I'm excited to, to hear what God has to tell me through Dan today. So... It's on you, bud. All right. William and Catherine Middleton were married in England on March, April 29th. The idea of a royal wedding is not really too familiar with us, but it's one that can be fascinating with its fairy tale qualities. While others, it's a strange thing, it's strange to me, the idea of royalty. We're used to seeing media coverage of extravagant celebrity weddings, luxuri- luxurious jewelry, houses, cars, you know, but royalty? When Queen Elizabeth II leaves her throne, William is in line, and also his father, Prince Charles, is in line to be king of England. Either of these two men will be king one day. And we as Americans probably have little personal experience of what it means to have a king of that kind of lifestyle. I've heard people criticize this monarchy style of government, while others criticize how formal it is and how much ceremony and ritual it is. It's been over 300 years since we've had a king in America. 
perhaps we're unfamiliar with the terms, what it means, how we have to react when the king is around, but one thing is for sure. Most of the world celebrated this event in England, this marriage. And all of England stopped to watch it. I'm sure everyone in England knew what was happening that day, that morning. <clears throat> Sorry. For them, it would have been something that they would remember for their lifetime, even something that they'd tell their kids about. An event of this much national importance has a way of making, um, marking one section of life from another. You could probably relate. We say things like, I remember when the Berlin Wall fell. I remember when Apollo 11 landed on the moon and Americans were walking on the moon. We say things like that. We organize our lives in things like that. And in England, they may some say something like this. I saw Prince William and Kate Middleton get married. I saw the king and his queen get married. I saw the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, as they're officially called, at Buckingham Palace. I saw the service at their church, Westminster Abbey. All over the world we see these governments and monarchies like England. Not only today do we run into these types of governments, but even in the early church we see these types of governments that have kings. Some countries suppose their monarchy, their kings, their queens come down from heaven. The family in power says that they've been divinely chosen to be leaders. And in some cases, they abuse this authority and they elevate themselves and their ruling dynasty within the community. And in thinking about the scripture passage we'll be studying today, this was the case in the local government that was ruling in Acts. When we, we're going to talk later about Caesar. The ruler was Caesar. In short, Caesar claimed that he was God, that God installed him as a ruler and that he himself was God. And to oppose him was to oppose God. He claimed to be the physical manifestation of God. Interesting. This happens all over the place in the ancient Near East. You know, the countries that surrounded Israel and the Jews around in history in the Old Testament. A lot of the rulers claimed to be God. God incarnate. The God of their nation was claimed by the king. The king claimed to be their God. And as it turns out, this idea is not very compatible with the religious views of the Jews and then the early Christians. In order to show your support for the government, for the king, the common cry was, Caesar is Lord. However, to be a member in the early church, they'd have to come to understand and even in some cases give their life for the declaration that it was not Caesar who was indeed Lord, but Jesus who was indeed their Lord. Jesus was their King. And becoming a Christian meant becoming an inhabitant of a new kingdom and having yourself, for yourself, a new King. We see a very real sense, a conflict in kingdoms. So as we turn to the book of Acts, Acts 17 verses 1 to 15, we're going to look at part of the early church's development. Chapter 17, we follow Paul and Silas and some other early Christians as they're preaching the gospel message in Thessalonica and Berea. Now in Thessalonica, we see Christians who are opposing and persecuting Paul in the early Christians. While in Berea, they're supportive, they're respectable, they treat them nobly. So here now as I read... 
Acts 17, verses 1 to 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, I never know how to say that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many number of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Still, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. The story in Thessalonica goes something like this. It's one plagued by trouble and persecution. The believers, Paul and Silas, come into a new town and they go into the synagogues and they reason with the Jews. They go right from the scriptures that the Jews were using. And they talk about this Messiah, this Jesus, who had come from God. They had been anticipating for a long time this Messiah would come. Three weeks, Paul and Silas would visit visit the synagogues and speak regarding Jesus. How it was necessary for him to suffer and then to die before he was crowned king. Messiah. Christ. There was a small crowd of the population that does something surprising. Their jealous reaction, as is described, against the message of these Christians is so strong they gather up a mob and provoke the whole city into an uproar. They stir up the whole city in an attempt to lay their hands on Paul and Silas in order to officially persecute them. Paul and Silas are hidden while Jason and some unnamed brothers are brought along to the city authorities. The charge? These men are disturbing the whole world and now they're here. 
They're saying Jesus is Lord. They're causing trouble. Because Jason took them into his home, he's now legally responsible for them, and so they bring Jason along too. They postponed, they're released. Interesting response. Makes you think. The text doesn't say, but you might be wondering, why would these Jews have been so jealous? My guess is not because they're so zealous for God's law. They're not zealous for the Torah, their law. The accusation of the Jews is that these new Christians were turning the world upside down. They say Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. Now the concern of the Jews is... The concern of the Jews says more about what they fear than about their religious integrity. Because it wasn't right for them to say Caesar is Lord either. Now in Deuteronomy, it's pretty specific. In the Ten Commandments, don't have any other gods before me. To claim Caesar is God was to claim that Caesar, uh, to declare that Caesar is Lord, is to declare Caesar is your king. You are the one that follows his allegiance. Caesar is the one that you worship. I doubt there was much religious thought here on part of the Jews. Do they really have their beliefs in mind? Because if they did, they would understand the coincident, the, the conflict that was happening here. Maybe they'd use different evidence when they brought them to court. Maybe they'd persecute them differently. Now, in my opinion, they don't really have their religious purity in mind. According to their law, they weren't supposed to say Caesar is Lord either. Doing so, again, would have meant worshiping him as God, pledging allegiance to him. For them, it was just as much idolatry as it was for the Christians. Except the early Christians were being persecuted by being uh, by overthrowing the government. Yet it becomes clear that this conviction is one of convenience. They're doing it because it's an easy way to point out these Christians and take them out. They want to convince the government to take out these Christians on the basis of causing a disturbance. The Jews in Thessalonica don't like what the Christians are doing, which is probably taking away their followers, taking away some of the focus, taking away some of the... uh, Well, I can't think of the word. Anyway, they're just taking away the focus off the people. They're taking away the Jews' notoriety. The Jews don't like them. And they want any opportunity to take out these people from the Roman government. And think of it like this. There's somebody you don't like at work because they do things differently than you. Maybe they're new. Perhaps you pick on them for some trivial reason. Eventually you get everyone frustrated. The boss has to come around and start sorting things out, figuring out what's going on. They do, are they really doing something illegal? Or immoral? Are they taking more company pens than you're taking? Are they making too many personal calls? Or is it they're taking away the group dynamic? They're taking away your comfortableness in the situation. They're changing things for you. It's not something illegal. It's not something immoral that's changing. It's your own frustration. It's your own jealousy for what's happening out around you. It's changing your relationships. It's changing your identity within the group. It's not that this person is stealing pens, talking to too many people, making too many personal copies. It's not any of that stuff. It's your personal issues, your frustrations, maybe even your own hidden motives. 
So notice what happens as the story continues. We go to verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogues. We see a dramatic shift in this little verse. And as it continues... They begin the entire process all over again in another location, this time in Berea. Except this time in Berea, the hearers are of a different character, and Luke calls them more noble than those in Thessalonica. Once they heard that these apostles were preaching, they examined the scriptures daily. They wanted to find out if what they were saying was true. Was this really what this said? Did you catch their eagerness when you read the verse, when I read it through? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I must be honest, in my more relaxed days and maybe my not as diligent days, I don't always examine the scriptures daily to figure out if all these things are true. So there's something extremely noble about what they're doing. I mean, every Sunday, they were every Saturday, sorry, the Jews were in the synagogue preaching. Paul and Silas were in the synagogues. But these Bereans were examining the Scriptures daily to figure out if this was true. They really wanted to know if what these men were saying was true. Their zeal for their religion began with what they knew of the law And it endured academic study in order to find out if what they were saying was really as full and as explicit as Jesus coming and dying for their sins and suffering. They received a new revelation of truth. And I appreciate this story because in two very different peoples, right next to each other, the Thessalonians are persecuting the believers for trivial reasons, while the Bereans are diligently wanting to know who God is, wanting to seek God for who He is. Now, there's much to think about in these stories, but I think we need to discuss the idea about the verse that separates these two stories. The persecution against these believers come directly related to the criticism that Jesus is their king. That turns out to be a very important passage. Because Luke talks a lot about the kingdom of God in his gospel, and he's also the author of Acts. Luke records the phrase, kingdom of God, 30 times in his gospel. That's a lot. I think it's over 30 times, actually, 31 or something. And he mentioned it a few times in Acts, too. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God often, and because of that, Luke recorded it often. Whatever Jesus talked about often must have been important, So, it's no surprise that as we go back to chapter 17, there's a pivotal point where this story shifts and it's on the phrase, and they called Jesus their king. This gospel message really focused on that. Jesus is their king. Who else has a kingdom but a king? Not all kingdoms are created equal. There must be something extraordinary about this kingdom if Jesus is the king. Jesus says in Mark's Gospel that the kingdom of God has already begun. It's already started. But yet he also says something very intriguing, that it's not yet here. There's a theological term that I learned in seminary. You know, you pay all this money, you have to learn some fancy terms. And so the fancy term of this kingdom of God is that it's already and not yet. So the kingdom of God is already here, but yet it's not quite here. 
It's here, but it's not. Mark's Gospel makes this concept most clear in more than one place. As for the already, it means Jesus fulfills all the requirements necessary to bring around the kingdom of God. He lives a perfect life under the law. He teaches about God's truth. He teaches about God's love. He heals the sick. He visited the outcast. He loves outsiders. He willingly offers himself up to death, a death that he didn't deserve. And God raised him from the dead. Jesus accomplished everything that was necessary in order to bring the kingdom to present, to completion. So in one sense, you can enter the kingdom of God right now by turning from your life under another kingdom, in another kingdom, receiving a new identity in a new kingdom where Jesus is king. But describing the not yet, it's a little bit more vague. We still have to wait for the kingdom of God to be fully present. We don't magically get teleported to a new location. We don't get time travel, although that would be cool. We don't get new bodies or new cars to get to this kingdom of heaven. You become a new person when God's Spirit is living in you. You live under new rules. The Spirit continually works in us from above, works in us, and makes us, transforms us into more of who we ought to be by the time the kingdom will come. This is often called the consummation of history, when history is consummated. Begin this journey as a citizen in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that will outlast any other kingdom you might find yourself in today. You will live out your days in the same body. Maybe you get a nice car or truck, maybe you won't. You know, no guarantees on that one. But your life will be under a new rule, a new rule with a new king. The king is named Jesus. And understanding this identity, this new kingdom, will reorient your values in your life, change your priorities. This kingdom of God won't come on any schedule that we're aware of. This is addressed in Acts when Jesus gives the final words to the disciples before he sends them to the clouds. Acts 1, I think it's verse 6 or 7. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. His rule will be complete. His reign will physically embody their entire religion. He also says that God is the one who determines when that day will come, when the world will end, and when the next age will begin. Now, this is specifically relevant, as a lot of you probably heard, the world was supposed to end last Saturday. I don't know if you got that memo. Apparently, it didn't. It happened. didn't happen. You might have seen the campaign. I think the man's name was Harold Camping. And he decoded the Bible's time frame to figure out the end of the world. I guess it got postponed to October 21st, so keep that in your palm pilots. He also predicted it back in the 70s and 80s, I, I also read. So his track record's not so great. But I'm comforted by the fact that the Bible says no one knows the day, no one knows the hour. So it's better for us to be ready for this coming kingdom of God than to not be ready. But don't plan on it. Don't plan on it being at 4 p.m. on October 21st. I guess it was a mathematical error, by the way, that caused him to be postponed. He should have talked to Jared. Whatever happens, I'm ready to be a member of this new kingdom. Whenever it comes, I'm going to be ready. However and whenever it arrives. 
it will be, I will be ready, and we should be ready, and I encourage you to be ready. The Bible says no one knows the time, no one knows the hour. Any attempts to specifically pin down the date are taking a little bit more liberty with the text, the Bible, than maybe they ought to. Christians are encouraged to live in light of this kingdom that is already here and not yet here. We serve a God who loves us and longs to enfold us into a new kingdom. He longs to make us part of a new family, a new kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is king over this kingdom of God, and this is an important concept but it be, because it is fundamental to the understanding of the early church. Jesus is ultimately the one in control of life and death, even eternity after death. But let's get practical here. What do we think of the idea as Jesus is king? What goes on inside our minds? Are we pushed by this new revelation of God? Are we tempted to react like the Thessalonians? To be jealous that something was going to change, some power is going to shift inside of us? Or will we react like the Bereans and seek out what this new truth is? Seek out who God is through the scriptures and through prayer in order to come to a fuller revelation of Jesus as King and Messiah. Surely a response is necessary on our part. The news that Jesus is King can leave us confused or can leave us intrigued. I say confused because some of us haven't spent a lot of time thinking of our life as a subject in a kingdom. It sounds a little fairy tale sometimes, but whatever else the kingdom of God is, whatever kingdom you find yourself in today, know that God is ready to have you in His kingdom because of His love for you. Uh, maybe this message leaves you curious. Maybe you haven't heard anything like this before and you want to investigate things further. Maybe you, may you be blessed in your search. May God draw you to Himself. May you diligently seek after the truth of what you've heard. And don't stop wrestling with what you've learned. Life's biggest questions are not to be ignored about life and death, eternity, heaven and hell. But however this message hits you today, we need to recognize the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is our King. And so think again about Prince William and Catherine Middleton. They, become, they will become King and Queen of England someday. The laws and decrees will determine many things regarding the identity of England. Their laws, values, and ethics will reflect something of their king. King and queen set the ethics, morals, the behavior of the nation. So if they have a passion to abuse power, the whole nation will likewise be like the hungry, hungry hippos trying to scoop up as much power, as much fame as they possibly can, trying to get all that they can acquire. How high-profile jobs, expensive cars, all at the value of justice and mercy and love, all at those other values, at the expense of all the other values, grace. But if they instead work towards a kingdom that puts others first, setting the values of others first, we'll have a whole different community. It'll be entirely different. We'll instead find people helping those who are abused by society, helping the poor, helping the elderly, and this too will become a priority of the nation. Each member of the society will work for justice, mercy, and peace. We'll have a society based not around the self, but which is instead reversed and thinks about others, thinks about non-selfish means. What can I give? Who can I serve? 
Who can I love today? The basis of the kingdom is based the basis of the kingdom is based on loving and mutual submission and putting the needs of others first. If you have chosen to live in God's kingdom and you have chosen Jesus as your king, your life is now reorientated to the ethics, morals of that king. See Jesus as a king who served those who are least, those who are outcast. He came to find the lost. He served the broken. He didn't abuse his power, but loved people even when it was controversial. He worked for peace. He didn't come around telling people what to do or arguing for the sake of arguing and trying to gain power for himself. And our values, our lives should reflect his life, reflect the kingdom of which we are a part. There's a hope in this kind of a kingdom. There's a hope that for us when we say Jesus is our Lord. It means that we seek to trust Him, to protect us, to provide for us, to guide us. However, we need to be very clear. Not all of us have the same path before the consummation of history. Some of us will have harder roads to walk than others. Things will be challenging. Some will have accidents. Some will have diseases. I think of those battling intense diseases, illnesses, cancers, depressions, physical defects, accidents. Don't lose heart in your suffering, whatever comes to you in life. If you have entered into God's kingdom, then you'll ultimately be restored and healed by that king. Your suffering is not in vain and is accounted for and not forgotten. God will restore you. God will use it as long as you let him to make you stronger. If you are willing, God will use these terrible things, the painful things, to prepare you for the next kingdom. Anger and frustration will come, and dealing with these things in healthy ways is very important, especially in an honest relationship with God. Don't get me wrong, God doesn't want you sick, God doesn't want you in pain, but He's willing to use those things in your life. God is grieved when we are sick. God is grieved when we are grieving. God grieves with us. Now what I'm saying is that these struggles change us. God can use these struggles to change us from the inside out. Process of purification. God works all things for good. Let's not strive to fight and get revenge now. But let us trust our King, Jesus, as the, who has our ultimate best interest in mind. Our ultimate vindicator. As we look to respond to God in healthy ways, to the news that Jesus is King, we'll experience a shift in focus. If we find ourselves in the kingdom of God, we will place new emphasis now on this king as best we can. In God's kingdom, what can help us grow? Spending time together as a family, as a church, spending time in prayer. Learning about God could also mean spending time in your own Bible, reading together with friends. I'm a big fan of listening to the Bible in the car on CD or MP3 could also mean taking your moral and ethical life to another level by getting accountable with someone, being serious about being accountable. It could be an intentional relationship so you can grow and mature. It could also mean spending time thinking about this new kingdom. Just thinking about what it means to have a new king. Counting the cost and being a part of God's kingdom. That is already and not yet. Jesus is king. Are you jealous or are you curious? Jesus is our king. Amen. Pray to close.